From the Metal Mayhem Studios in Rochester, New York. We are gold. We are gold. And heard around the world by metalheads just like you. This is Metal Mayhem ROC. Heavy metal music. Your weekly dose of metal music. Interviews, album reviews, news, and more. Want to be part of the show? Send us a message through our website, MetalMayhemROC.com. Or hit us up on Facebook and Twitter. Search Metal Mayhem ROC. It's getting nice and heavy. And now, welcome tonight's host, John the Vernomatic Verno. Good evening, everybody, and welcome to Rocktober, the preferred month of headbangers around the world. As always, Thursday nights, new content drops. Visit the MetalMayhemROC.com website. There you'll find direct links to Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, however you consume your podcasting content. While you're there, download some past shows. Do us a favor, subscribe to the podcast, leave a review. That kind of stuff helps with our Google rankings. Sign up for our email list. This is your chance to receive weekly updates on new shows, merch promos, and free giveaways. Monday nights, we have a live radio show that I host called Metal Mayhem ROC Live. It's on thatmetalstation.com. This is a real cool interactive show. You go there, could get into a chat room and interact with me, send me requests. And another cool thing is you can interact with other listeners from around the world. It's really a cool way to, you know, make some new friends and talk about metal. Talking about metal, tonight's show, The History of Metal, the year 1977. Now, we started this series in early August. We're doing the years 73 through 1988 or 89. I forget which one we're ending on. It's a way to recap each year and just tell the story of what these bands are doing how the scene has changed because you know back in 73 it was really coming off of the 60s and early 70s and that's really when the metal started so i'm joined by two of our metal mayhem roc metal historians ian o'rourke from the band motor lord and metal walt from the new jersey new york area both of these guys have a well of knowledge and they're really an Great addition to the Metal Mayhem ROC team. So let's get things started. Live from New Jersey, Metal Mayhem ROC correspondent, Metal Walt. Hey, Walt, what's going on, man? Hi, guys. Happy to be back to talk 1977. What a year, 77. 76 was jammed up with all our regular legend bands. Everyone's releasing stuff. You know, all the kisses, all the rushes, Nugent, Aerosmith, UFO, Everyone's busy releasing not one, but two live albums. Walt, what does 77 have? 77 is a continuation of climbing up that heavy metal hard rock ladder, just inching towards the top. Um, I think it's continuation of, man, the tree is just getting bigger. Branches are growing out all over the place. You got the heavy hitters, especially in America, continuing to release albums. You got the bands that were new and up and comers in, let's say, the mid-70s starting to now become much bigger bands. And when you look at the roster for the year and the releases, it's, uh, man, it's almost doubled in size if you go back and look at it from, let's say, three or four years ago. So you look, you have, I mean, just naming down the list in 77, Rush, Kiss, ACDC, Judas Priest, Scorpions, 
Queen, UFO, Blue Oyster Cult, Alice Cooper, Rainbow, Motorhead. I mean, on and on and on. I mean, and this is all within one year. So I think I look at 77 and even to a degree 78 as this is the pinnacle. I remember that time as a young boy and rock was just in the spotlight. It couldn't get bigger. It was still the 70s vibe, posters on the wall, bell-bottom pants and boots, and every guy, a teenage guy, had long hair down to their, their, the middle of their back. Rock was king, and that's what 77 was about. So let's welcome our other metal correspondent, metal historian from Central New York in the band Motorlord, Ian O'Rourke. Hey, Ian, welcome back to the show, man. Hey, Vernomatic, glad to be here, brother. How you doing? I'm doing well. Uh, first and foremost, I want to wish you a happy 50th birthday. Happy birthday, man. I appreciate it, brother. Thank you very much. Yeah, it was uh, it was a momentous day, you know, being being 50. You know, I sat in the corner and cried for about 10 minutes. Oh, oh don't God. cry. Uh, welcome <laughs> welcome to the club. We've been waiting for you. Happy birthday. <laughs> so we're up to year uh, 1977. What's your pulse and your temperature on the year 77? Best part about it is, as we discussed the last couple, I mean, every year seems to be a step going up that ladder towards what is eventually going to be just these big granddaddy, you know, heavy metal bands that are coming. But you can see where that heavier edge, the the better production, the the, the more intense guitar playing is really starting to come up. And we're going to really be talking about that with a couple of the bands that we're going to be uh, going over here. The interesting thing with 77, as we're going to move forward and like we say, there's a million bands, the big dogs aren't existent in 77. Zeppelin's idle. Sabbath is idle. W what's going on in the Purple Camp? Are they broken up? Are they just in rehab? What's going on with Purple? So in 1977, Deep Purple is dead. They are out. They're gone. Uh, they disband in 76, as we talked about in the last episode. Unfortunately, Tommy Boland passes away. The band is over. Uh, I think we saw uh, the, the first release of uh, Ian Pace and uh, John Lord with uh, Ashton, the Ashton Pace Lord release. Another one came out in 77. Um, you're starting to see the, the growth of the Ian Gillen band. Uh, in 77, he put out two really underrated and let's say under the radar releases uh clear air turbulence and scarabus i mean any hardcore ian gillen fan knows these albums they're great simple rockers and really really good material on that and and the gillen band was at that point in time they were hitting their own peak they were huge by the late 70s they were really really big in the uk and europe never really made it in the states but uh, understandable um and i think you saw uh rainbow growing i think you had uh this is now continuing the trend of the the live albums rainbow released on stage their first uh live album um it was based on shows from 1976 in germany and japan and uh it has an amazing cover uh the cover is a snapshot probably taken from around the soundboard on the tour of the stage and the whole stage is just a gigantic rainbow from the stage left to stage right an actual beautiful image where the, even the band members are small but it's the whole name of the band that gets called out um and this is also where you saw that next level of what a live recording brings to the fan 
where, in my honest opinion, I love the Rainbow catalog on their original recordings, but they lack something. They lack uh, expansion. They lack creativity. They lack that sound. And on this album, you started to see those songs opening up. And everybody knows that uh, Richie Blackmore, he loved to jam and noodle. You really saw the whole different side of the band, and they were fantastic musicians um, coming into the light. And that's what made, really made Rainbow. They were a live act. So I think, uh, yeah, that's kind of what was going on in that, uh, let's call it the Deep Purple Rainbow family tree camp for 77. Stage from Rainbow is another one of those seminal live albums in my book. It's another one of those albums that totally will change your perspective when it comes to a band. I mean, the Rainbow Rising album to me is just great, but when you hear the songs from that album on the recording for On Stage and just that intensity of the band and you're hearing the amplifiers rumbling along versus, you know, being you know, subtly muted in the studio. It's just intense, man. And that is just great stuff all the way around. I've always loved Rainbow. I've appreciated them more as I've gotten older. And actually, I've mentioned before, I appreciate them hell of a lot more in the last six weeks after I read the Ronnie James Dio biography, A Rainbow in the Dark. So a band that I love even more than Rainbow is Rush. 1977 saw them release uh, A Farewell to Kings. Fantastic release. Went over to England to record this. Still working with Terry Brown as the producer. Now they're coming off the success uh, with 2112. All the World's a Stage was the follow-up live album following the path of these mid-70s live albums that Wald has been demonstrating. So Farewell to Kings didn't have a lot of songs, but it had a lot of punch. The title track, Farewell to Kings, features Alex Lifeson on uh, acoustic guitar. Just a fantastic kick-ass song. Xanadu, 11-plus minutes or 9-plus minutes of just um, percussion insanity. Neil, the professor on the drum kit with the the bells and the chimes and the whistles and the woodblocks. Alex and Getty doing double-neck guitars. We'll get... Ian to give us a rundown on exactly what's going on there. And then, you know, probably their first and only pop single, maybe closer to the heart, just a fantastic release. 
And uh, tell us about Farewell to Kings and the musicianship that Rush is demonstrating at this point of their career. Yeah, as we discussed, you know, previously with 2112, you know, now come past that album, now that they've basically shown what they can do, they are starting to cultivate even more and more broader sounds. Um, you know, you're seeing uh, even more use, like you said, the double neck guitars, you know, uh, you know, they, they incorporated that quite a bit, especially uh, on stage during this period. But, you know, uh, Lifeson and uh, using uh, Taurus pedals, which are these uh, effect pedals that you would use on the floor to give these, you know, these big bellowing sounds. And then, uh, you know, uh, Getty using the little Moog synthesizer and some of the, the foot pedal operated units that you could use back in the day. So allowing themselves to be able to play their main instrument and then still utilize their feet to add another level of instrumentation to it. And, and on top of that, I mean, Neil, with all the things he's doing, I, I, there, I can't really think of any band at the time that had that level of musicianship like these three guys did. For three guys to make that much sound together is just amazing. I uh, couldn't agree more. I think this album is uh, its just solid all the way around. It's very experimental. Um, and I think you see Rush really dangling in some different instrumentation here, too. So where we saw the complexities on the 2112, I think you're seeing now additional layers of experimentation. And, um, I mean, again, some standout tracks, Xanadu. I mean, just the content and the lyrical content behind a song like that where it's taken from a poem written by Samuel Coleridge called Kublai Khan. I mean, that's, you know, that's, that's a genius that's writing that there. Um, yeah, I, I agree. <laughs> and then the whole Cygnus uh, X1 book one. I mean, this is the part one of the, of the series, but how it's, the song is broken down to multiple areas. It's very instrumental, very jamming. And again, the story which is apparently about uh, uh, a story that takes place in outer space. And it was inspired by Neil's, let's say, uh, liking or curiosity on the black holes at that time. So that just tells you this band is in a whole other stratosphere for their intelligence at that point in time. And if fast forward to 2021, uh, rock band Primus as a, uh, let's say, tribute to Rush is out there on the road playing a Farewell to Kings, uh, the complete album. And it's inspired by uh, Les Claypool, his first experiencing Rush, apparently, in uh, the San Francisco area in 1977. He apparently was 14 years old, drank through three warm low and brow beers and threw up all over the parking lot. And that's how he was christened to Rush. I read about uh, Primus doing that Farewell to Kings in its entirety. He actually met with Getty and one got his blessing, but two worked out arrangements with them and made it happen. Here's a uh, Farewell to Kings fun fact. We're up here in Rochester, New York, and the cover of Farewell to Kings, the the broken down building and the that was in Buffalo, New York. Oh wow. If you guys didn't if you guys didn't know that that did not know that, that. Yeah, that foreground. And I guess the backdrop is uh Toronto. Okay. And that's a and that's and uh, that's a real guy in that um, marionette outfit. How about that? Huh? 
So, Rush, uh, 77, Farewell to Kings. Uh, let's see what else we got up here. Uh, ACDC, Let There Be Rock. Even though the album Let There Be Rock was well-received and it's a kick-ass album, the band at the time was on thin ice. They were big in Europe and Australia, but they weren't really cracking the American market yet. Just like Kiss and Rush, the record company gave them an ultimatum, deliver or you're going to get dropped. This was the last album with original bass player Mark Evans, so things were changing a little bit. Now this album, Let There Be Rock, just fantastic, filled with all concert staples. Let There Be Rock, Bad Boy Boogie, Hell Ain't a Bad Place to Be, Whole Lot of Rosie, are you kidding me? Those songs are like Rushmore in itself. The Australian version had a different song in Crab City in Blue. It was replaced by an edited version of Problem Child for the rest of the world's release. So, you know, there's the band uh, doing what they do. Bon Scott was Bon Scott, fantastic. The Young Brothers are just writing stuff that, again, is just legendary. So Let the Be Rock, kick-ass album. Ian, uh, what's your take on ACDC in this release? I know you're a big ACDC fan. Yeah, um, the, the crazy part is, you know, this is another band that at, at that age, I, I remember, I think, hearing some stuff. I didn't get into them, into them deeply into their back catalog until years later. But when you hear the album, Let There Be Rock, the progression from this album through to what's going to be Powerage next in 78, going up to Highway to Hell, that is when you're starting to see this more intense production. The guitars now are how you would expect them to sound, you know, not, not to take anything away from the first couple albums, but when you're listening to Angus Young, you know, here's a guy with an SG guitar plugged into a Marshall stack and it's just cranked all the way up until it can't go anymore. That's what you're hearing now being captured on on these next several albums. And the songwriting is, you know, even though, you know, they'd never really deviate too much in their scope, they still now have captured that little niche of their own and they cultivate it to be just as powerful as what other bands are putting out at the time. It's just, it really is, it's a great album. And anybody that has never heard it, I mean, I don't know how you couldn't have, but, you know, go do yourself a favor and go back and check it out. It's a great album. So 77 had Kiss at the top of the hill. Man, they had lunchboxes, bubblegum, playing cards, you name it, they had it. Well, uh, what's going on with the um, albums of Kiss in 77? Couldn't agree more. This is Kiss at their pinnacle. I think they hit the top of the mountain, and everything from this point was a uh, a slippery slope downhill. Um, I mean, Love Gun. I think this is a you know again fantastic album. I mean, they shipped a million copies of the album on the release day. Just think about that, right? It was also the uh, first album in which all four members had songwriting and singing credits on the album. I mean, for me personally, I was seven years old. And this was my first introduction to my love for Ace Freely that has continued uh, through all these years. I, I couldn't tell you how Shock Me is a, a, a song that I can remember from my childhood. Um, but you have Shock Me, Christine 16, I Stole Your Love, Love Gun, the title track. 
I mean, this is just a, a monster of an album. Um, it, it hit number four on the Billboard charts in the U.S., and it prompted uh, the band to go ahead right after that and record a couple of shows in L.A. Uh, for what would be the Alive 2 album. Now, Alive 2 was released only a couple months after the shows actually were recorded, and it was an intention for them to not repeat songs from Alive 1, so it was only songs taken from Destroyer, Rock and Roll Over, and Love Gun. And then the interesting part of this was there was a side four of the album that was actually uh, all new material, but it was recorded in the studio and from my neck of the woods at a legendary theater that has been long defunct called the Capitol Theater in Pasake, New Jersey. Um, and again, you got another killer ace track there, Rocket Ride. So this was a, an awesome year for me personally with Kiss and a great one for the band. Um, a couple other points on a few other bands. Alice Cooper, who I've talked about, the slow decline. I think Alice is continuing right down this path here. He releases the album called Lace and Whiskey. Um, he moved away from the persona change of, let's say, the shock rock and the Stephen theme to uh, what he identified as a heavy drinking comic uh, called Maurice Escargot, who had a similar, I guess, approach of like the Pink Panther, that kind of stupidity. Um, you know, the album, it's got a couple okay songs, uh, You and Me is the Ballad, and It's Hot Tonight, it's an okay rocker, but it really didn't go anywhere, and he checked officially into rehab in New York City right after that tour in 77. And then the last one would be Queen. Um, I mean, News of the World, overall, I think uh, they have better full albums, but this is the album that put them into, or maybe, it, maybe this is the album that defined stadium rock the term stadium rock and uh, i think you also saw queen at the biggest point everywhere in 1977 with this album of course it has we are the champions and we will rock you on there and uh, of course that was the biggest thing under the planet at that point in time um also has some other great songs spread your wing get down make love other rockers other more sensitive songs so overall a great album but uh you know not necessarily one that everybody's going to look at as a complete album uh, Ian, now, what, what's your take on Kiss? I agree with, with Walt. I mean, Shock Me, you know, the title track, Love Gun, you just you just can't beat it. And then Alive 2, you know, Alive 2, for what it is, you know, I mean, it, it is that deviation away from. And thank God it came around because then we got the song Rocket Ride. And I think that that was something that everybody was longing for, especially after getting a song like Shock Me from the Love Gun album. They wanted more Ace. Let's hear some more Ace. Give us the Ace. And uh, yeah, it's just some really cool stuff. And then Queen, uh, you, know, you couldn't, you know, I, you couldn't agree more. We are the champions, and we will rock you. I mean, it was everywhere, just everywhere. You couldn't escape it. Um, and they were still, you know, they were dabbling in their their ballads. They were dabbling in their um, uh, their hard rock, and then even some of that little bit of proggy stuff that they tended to do. But that was that magic and majesty of what the band Queen is. Also in 77, guys, Judas Priest, Sin After Sin. I think it goes without saying that this is another great album by the band. This is one of my favorite albums by them, if not my favorite from the 70s or one of the top two from the 70s. Um, you know, it starts off with The Killing Sinner. Um, and then, you know, I'm not going to deviate into every track on there, but, you know, you have stuff like Starbreaker, 
and you have call for the priest, uh, Ron Deal, uh, you know, dissident aggressor, let us pray. These are freaking great songs. And this is stuff. I mean, dissident aggressor, Christ, Slayer covered it. Can't be a bad tune if Slayer's going to cover it. Um, just really, you know, kick ass music coming out from these guys. And again, you're starting to see the heaviness factor kicking up. You're starting to see the production factor kicking up. You're starting to see the way that they are um, elevating certain levels of the songs, the, the guitar soloing, you know, they're, they're getting into to different textures and different, different stylings and different effects that they're using. Everything is kind of leading upwards and onwards up this ladder, as, as Walter pointed out before. Um, and then you've got the Scorpions, Taken by Force. Uh, you know, the, the saddest part about this whole thing is that this will be the final studio album uh, with Uli Roth. But, I mean, Steam Rock Fever, you know, We'll Burn the Sky, Sales of Sharon. He's a woman, she's a man. I mean, this is just a freaking cracker of an album. It kicks ass from start to finish. Again, here, you're starting to see the, that new wave where they're, everybody's ear is picking up what everybody else is doing. So they're hearing what other bands are doing. You know, they've been on tours. They've met with, you know, they've seen Judas Priest. They've heard these other bands. They're all starting to borrow from each other when it comes to how they're setting up equipment, what type of equipment that they're using, how they're recording things. Oh, the drum sound on that album was great. These guys are finally starting to make albums that everybody wanted to hear up to this point. So, uh, you know, just two great albums that, that came out again in 77. And, and I know they're from bands that we all appreciate and love. Scorpions and I love that era. You're right. They mirror each other. Every album, they made a step forward and they're really honing their sound. Can't agree with you more. I love both of those bands. Yeah, I, I support your angles on both of them. I think it's again climbing the ladder, awesome tracks on those albums. And uh especially the priest. I mean, this is a big release, their first release on a major label. I mean, CBS Records signed them, right? So that took them up. They had money. They got a big advance payment, right? They had the support to go on the road. And, uh, you know, I think this is also the period of the band where they're really getting themselves established in the U.S. more, right? So you're starting to see them, like, headlining shows at those mid-sized kind of clubs and theaters, right? Getting on the map, 
And I think the next couple of years after that is when they really hit it big. Well, talking about hitting it big, 77 in the American scene, Ted Nugent, Cat Scratch Fever, Sticks, The Grand Illusion, Aerosmith, Draw the Line, Arena Rock was alive and strong as hell. Ted Nugent's Cat Scratch Fever, uh, just fantastic. By this point, you know, he has just really distanced himself from the Amboy Dukes period, and he's just really taking that next step participating in those big uh, festivals that were going on in America, down in Texas, the Texas Jam, the California Jam, where they got 100,000 people there. Aerosmith, even though the substance abuse was really going, you know, full bore, the toxic twins of uh, Joe Perry and Steven Tyler, um, the Draw the Line album, just love it, filled with all classics. Now, another band wasn't exactly metal, but they had an edge to them was Sticks. 77 saw them releasing the album The Grand Illusion. They had their own little twin guitar attack of James Young and uh, Tommy Shaw. The Grand Illusion title track was fantastic. Fooling Yourself, uh, Come Sail Away, Miss America, uh, The Grand Finale. Now, these turned out to be, you know, FM staples along the lines of Boston and, um, you know, some of these other bands that we, we've talked about in the past. Another thing going on in America at the time, BOC. Now, Walt, um, you're a little bit of a BOC fan. What do you know about them at this point? Yeah, I, uh, I appreciate BOC. And uh, I think this was, a again, a time where they're starting to get on the radio a little bit more. And they were another cool band that, you know, maybe didn't have like that straight ahead identity. You know, they kind of had. They were more of a straight rock and roll band with a heavy edge. Uh, their origins were out of New York City, but they had like quirky lyrical content, you know, out of like sci-fi and horror books, you know, definitely not your traditional. They were, they fit in perfectly with the Rush fan. Um, and I think in, in 77, um, when they released the album that came out, I think they had the monster track, no pun intended, with the song Godzilla on it. Uh, that I still think is a, a cool song with a cool drum beat, a good chorus. And I think it saw everything Blue Oyster Cult is known for. Great guitar work by Buck Dharma and good vocals, good harmony, stuff that's you know appeals to the metal fan and the hard rock fan and classic rock, all wrapped up in the same thing.
Inferno, I think we've talked uh, about all the established bands, but let's talk about some of the new releases that came out this year and then uh, kind of what's on the horizon for new bands to come in the later years. I think Ian's got some good information. That's right. Well, one of the big ones that, that goes without saying is Motorhead. Motorhead's self-titled album comes out 1977 on Chiswick, which is the only time they were on Chiswick. It was a small crappy label that they were able to get done um you know probably burned through a lot of drugs while recording the album but the album has got some some classics on there you've got the title track motorhead which lemmy had initially written when he was with hawkwind um but you've got vibrator lost johnny iron horse slash born to lose white line fever keep us on the road the watcher and them doing their own cover of train kept a rolling this is probably the most punkish sounding of their albums uh, because of A, with the lo-fi um, production, and B, just because of the that raw intensity that they first came around with. It wasn't until the next few albums that we'll probably discuss down the road where you can see they start to hone in on um, their sound a little bit more. Another one that goes without saying, and every guy that loves metal has got to know that uh riot put out rock city in 1977 desperation the title track rock city overdrive angel tokyo rose if anybody ever gets a chance to go back and listen to this album this is just a burner from beginning to end and it doesn't sound old today it still sounds great it is just a great album from beginning to end the other band that we're going to be talking about on a whole other side of the metal spectrum is a little band called quiet riot from california with a new up-and-coming guitar player by the name of randy rhodes this album and its follow-up are so hard to get a hold of because they were both only released in japan this is very much glam rock a harder at times, but very glam rock sounding album. Um, it's not so funny. Mama's Little Angels. Uh, they do a cover of Tin Soldiers by the Small Faces. Um, they do another cover of Glad All Over from the Dave Clark Five. If you're into bands like we've discussed before, like The Sweet, or even with um, you know some of the other bands uh, along the lines, you know this is a pretty cool album to check out if you get your uh, get the opportunity to and then the kings of power pop from chicago area uh midwest uh cheap trick on epic released their self-titled with um hot love speak now forever hold your peace he's a whore which is just a killer song named the cello uh bell the tv violence hello kiddies uh, Daddy Should Have Stayed in School, Tax Man, Mr. Thief, Cry Cry, and the finally, Oh Candy. This has still got some really hard rocking moments to it. Everything that Cheap Trick has ever done really has some good guitar-driven hard rocking moments to it. They just happen to wrap it up in this pop bubble that just, it's not really glam. Um, it's a little bit more radio-friendly, um, but it still kicks a lot of ass, and anybody that's ever heard their live album can totally identify what I'm saying. So a couple of the bands that I wanted to, you know, make uh, reference of real quick that we had talked about 
before you had um, the band Angel out of New York, uh, still with Casablanca, Eddie Kramer producing uh, for them, basically following a lot of the same lines that uh, Kiss was doing. Um, they had On Earth As It Is In Heaven was released. Um, Stars, uh, another New York City band, had the album Violation. Um, and then uh, the other band that we talked about before, Moxie from uh, the other part of North America, up in Canada, had Riding High. These are, for any of those fans of, you know, maybe some, you know, heard about the lesser known, maybe a little more obscure, uh, hard rock you know, metallic feeling, uh, albums. These are, uh, these are some that really should be checked out. Um, you would not be doing yourself a disservice. We still had some really good stuff that was coming out as far as, uh, self-titled and debut albums from bands in 1977. Commenting on that quiet riot again, sounds nothing like the quiet riot metal health that came out in, uh, in 83. Uh, I heard those albums, back when they're, you know, after Quiet Riot got popular. And like you said, a lot of it has its covers. Isn't Slick Black Cadillac on one of those that ended up on uh, Metal Health? It is on Quiet Riot, too. Yeah. Yep. Um, and it, you, there's remnants of the sound because of the riff of the song, but it doesn't have the attitude that Slick Black Cadillac on, on Metal Health has. You're right. I mean, it's definitely, you know, it's definitely that very glam rock, that late seventies glam rock. But, you know, I mean, if somebody, you know, wants to delve back and go through the trenches and see that ascension up the ladders we're talking about, I mean, it might be something cool for them to check out. Yeah. And the Randy Rhodes, you know, it's not Randy from like blizzard. So, you know, it's just an entirely different band. Uh, motorhead. I love that motorhead. Uh, I remember getting into the first motorhead I ever got into when I heard uh, one of the older kids in high school, jamming in a boom box no sleep till hammersmith and at the time you know you thought they were the hardest things ever well they looked it too you know motorhead and but that that debut's killer and you're right that rock city from riot is classic and you know you got to give it up to cheap trick you know they're not exactly metal that album live budokan is that's up there with the frampton like walt was talking about you know rush more of live albums so, Ian, there's a lot of going on in 1977, and a lot of the eventual legend bands are out there. Bands like, you know, Foghat, Journey, Leonard Skinnerd, uh, Heart. What's the hard rock landscape at this point? What are these bands doing, and what's the releases they're doing? Well, you know, some of the, the bands that I guess would fall into this line, you know, I guess you could call them, you know, those... Um, direction bands you know towards heavy metal you know thin lizzy they put out the bad reputation album um this unfortunately it tends to be the last album with brian robertson um as the uh, co-lead guitarist um it's a little bit of a falling out between uh, he and phil lennett uh he you know is unable to uh, do some touring obligations la da 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 Next thing you know, Phil and Scott Gorham do a majority of the writing together for the Bad Reputation album. They pull him in for a couple of things, and then he is ultimately gone. Um, really, I don't even think he makes it through the tour. I think they get Gary Moore back in to finish the tour, and then Gary Moore sticks around for the next album we'll discuss down the road. Uh, UFO, they put out the Lights Out album. And anybody that knows me from this discussion so far knows I love them. 
Um, I even got you listening to them now, which is a good thing. Uh, Lights Out album, you know, I mean, it's, you know, it's just a, another cracker of an album. Uh, you know, it starts off with Too Hot to Handle, uh, you know, just another suicide. You got the, 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 the key hit song, Lights Out, you know, that comes, you know, the title track. Really just a smoking album. And then you still got, you know, stuff that's coming down the line from uh, Uriah Heep and Nazareth. These guys are still um, putting out stuff that's a little bit more uh, in the vein of um, some of that hard rock sound that they've had. Some meanderings uh, as they go on into some heavier directions. You know, but that's what a lot of these bands always have done. They've always had one foot kind of. Uh, back where they were, but taking that big step with the other toe in the other direction and, and you know, dabbling into uh, these uh, new regions of, of uh, hard rock and eventually heavy metal. So that's going to be pretty cool to come across as we get down the line here. But then, as you mentioned, you know, I mean, you know, the final album, you know, with uh, the legendary Skinner Street Survivors, um, you know, that's a that's a, a sad state of affairs, you know, for anybody that's a a fan of good old uh, Southern hard rock uh, fog hat live cannot discount that album as a, just a great, great hard rock and live album for anybody. Um, another thing I've mentioned before is I have a great affinity for live albums and this is one of them that's on that list. Um, and then like you had said, you know, I mean, heart, you know, with little queen, the song Barracuda itself is, is on this album so even if you bought the album just for the song barracuda just that as we mentioned before take into reference that this particular point in time and listen to just how heavy and driving that song is and that lets you know what's going on within the you know the rock and the hard rock and the heavy metal world at this time so kudos to a lot of these bands uh nazareth what's going on with nazareth and journey Yep, Nazareth had uh, Expect No Mercy. Um, it's another solid album. Uh, fun fact for you, I know that, you know, you have pointed out before, you know, the artistry of Frank Franzetta. He, uh, Franzetta, he does the album cover for Expect No Mercy, another killer album cover. It's one of those ones that, you know, you just want to buy it just so you can frame it on your wall because it just looks really cool and it looks just so heavy metal. And, you know, they're um, they're putting out some good, solid Hard rock, like I say, you know, some, you know, metallic meanderings on uh, on occasion, um, you know, just as far as how some of the riffing may sound. But they, again, they're another band that has always done that. So you have Journey putting out the album next. And this is another one of those bands at this point. They're very fusion-y slash progressive with a very hard rock guitar sound, a guitar rock uh, attitude to it. Some songs with vocals, a lot of instrumental stuff on here. It's uh, Raleigh and uh, Neil Schoen, uh kind of spreading their wings, you know, again, you know, after, you know, post Santana. If you're a fan and you like, you can understand that deep dive, especially being a guitar player, uh, going back and listening to Neil Schoen with some of the stuff he's ripping off at the time, just amazing. I want to say that I, I take this, uh, I take my role as the moderator here very seriously. And I went ahead and I did my heavy metal homework and I listened to a little more UFO. And I have to say, uh, I see and hear the band in a different light. 
But what was the album with Let It Roll and Sweet Sweet or Shoot Shoot? Shoot Shoot, that would be the Forset album from 1975. Okay, um, yeah, good stuff, man. Good stuff. A nice variety. The guitar work is great. It definitely sounds like a mid-70s production with analog recording and, you know, just the freshness of a different kind of technical approach to the album. So I'm looking forward to hearing more of UFO. So I want to thank you for uh, <laughs> pushing me in that direction. Hey, that's what we're here for, man, to help each other out and give each other, uh, you know, guidance and direction when we need it, you know? All right, uh, we're going to take a little break, and when we come back, we're going to button up 1977. We're going to talk with Walton Ian about some of the bands that are honing their skills in the garages and basements around the world. Get a little preview of 78. I'm the Vernomatic. You're listening to Metal Mayhem ROC as we continue the history of metal, the year 1977. Metalheads around the world know that Metal Mayhem ROC plays the music they love, gives them the music news they want, and talks with the artists they want to hear from. We have legendary rocker Don Dock and metal comedian Jim Florence, Michael Sweet, founder of the band Striper, Bobby Blitz of Overkill, the guys from Last in Line. We have Rod's drummer, founder, and solo artist Carl Kennedy with us, the author of the now famous Van Halen Rising, Greg Reynolds, Heidi and Carla from the Butcher Babies, Metal Mike's Austin from the Halford Band, Sean Peck, Lead singer of Death Dealer. Visionary. I'm a metal visionary. Metal visionary. Metal Mayhem ROC. It's always good to talk metal. There's not a lot of us left. You in? Thursday night, 8 p.m. East on all major podcast platforms. Attention, metalheads. We all want to return to concert venues soon. Introducing Metal Mayhem ROC Metal Forever Freedom X Sanitizer. This sanitizer product is water and foam based, manufactured with proprietary HYIQ solution. That's right, no alcohol, but more effective. Manufactured following FDA sanitizer monograph guidelines. It applies smooth without irritating the skin. Safe for all ages. Keep your friends and family safe with Metal Mayhem ROC's own sanitizer. Visit Metal Mayhem roc.com or metalforever.com to order your bottles now use promo code metal at the freedom x checkout store for a show discount now now back to metal mayhem roc just want to remind you folks to join us monday nights on thatmetalstation.com as i host a live radio show it's called metal mayhem roc live it's three hours of live tunes there's a chat room interaction so i invite you to join us so 77, it's groundbreaking. There's bands everywhere. Our heroes are becoming huge. Ian, what's going on out there? Who's trying to get big? Who's doing demos? Who's releasing stuff? Get us up to speed, man. So as we discussed before, there's a lot of bands in the garages and basements around that are uh, starting to bubble up and, and try to make a name for themselves. Uh, just a few to throw out there for people to check out. Uh, a little band called Samson that uh, little guy by the name of Bruce Dickinson uh, was in before he got his chance to join up with um, Iron Maiden. You had uh, the uh, boys in Bad Brains. Uh, got to give a little nod to them. Kind of hardcore, kind of, you know, metal, kind of a little bit of everything. Little band from New Jersey called Misfits. 
you know, anybody that's into uh, scary uh, music uh, probably knows them. And anybody that's into metal probably knows who Glenn Danzig is. And um, I think I'm going to turn it over to my friend Metal Walt, because I think he's got a couple he wants to talk about, too. Yeah, thanks, Ian. I think uh, lumping this up, up quickly and bunching them together, I think we see the very early origins of three or four, um, what will be the giants of 80s rock, uh, starting in 77. So out of the UK, we have the origins of Def Leppard. Um, they were, uh, in 1977, the band name was called Atomic Mass, and it was Rick Savage and Pete Willis, who were actually were the founding fathers there. Um, and they actually tried out Joe Elliott uh, to be a second guitar player at the time. And he didn't get the job, but they really appreciated his vocal style. So they moved him over to vocalist, and um, he ended up staying with the group, and then they moved forward with him as the singer. Uh, so kind of interesting there. Uh, Great White, uh, Jack Russell and Mark Kendall, uh, you know, the two main players in, in Great White that we know them from their heyday in the 80s, they also became acquainted in 1977. And uh, they kind of bounced around, and it makes sense that they, they got their start around then. They had they jumped through a bunch of names, band names from Highway to Livewire to Wires. And I think those couple of years, then they kick it out in the early 80s, and they come out as Great White. Um, out of the East Coast, over by us, out of Maryland, uh, the band we know as Kicks uh, started off uh, as a band called Shoes. S-H-O-O-Z-E, kind of cool spelling of it. Um, and then they changed their name to The Generators. Um, but again, they kicked around that uh, Baltimore, Maryland area uh, until they, I think, had their debut release in 1981 under uh, the name Kicks. And then, of course, one of my favorites, and I think a giant um, that we're going to talk about in the next couple of years, uh, would be Saxon. And they were formed, again, under a different name, uh, called the band name was called Son of a Bitch, and that's really all you hear about in terms of what Saxon was in 1977. However, it was all of the let's say the uh, the, the 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 band members that were synonymous with uh, with the band Saxon, Biff Bifford, Oliver Dawson, etc. Okay, and I think we'll end this uh, what's in the basement with a band that will really break out in 1978, and that is Van Halen. Uh, 77, Van Halen really was an established act, um, but they were, you know, pretty much in that L.A. scene, and they were known. I mean, they were rocking it out through the clubs. They were on fire there. They had every producer and record company and management looking at them. Um, they had been clubbing around that area, I think, since around 74, 75. Um, they got signed shortly after they finished their four-month stint, I guess, as a residency at the Sherwood, Starwood Club, I should say. Um, and uh, basically, it, it prompted them into 1978, which would they record their deb debut album. Yeah, well, um, great stuff there. I, I think that all three of us can agree that, you know, Van Halen is one of the pinnacle bands of all time. Um, the, the material that uh, they were pumping around and anybody that really wants to go back and do a little bit of fun uh, learning. There is a documentary that was on Netflix called Van Halen, the early years that takes you back to 73, 74, when they first had shifted their name over from Mammoth to Van Halen and were ruling the party scene 
backyard parties and stuff in uh, Pasadena and Altadena and areas around um, Orange County and near L.A. Um, before they finally got a chance to break through the doors at uh, Gazari's as a cover band. Um, and then, you know, ultimately to the Starwood and, and greater and better things. But, yeah, very cool stuff there. Hey, well, I want to—I uh, saw that little pun you put in there on fire, you know, uh, from the first Van Halen album. That was accidentally on purpose. <laughs> well, you take credit for it. Good work, my friend. To wrap up what you were saying before, there was a little nugget of um, punk bands that were going on at this time. You, you mentioned the Misfits, but like Iggy Pop was happening, his Lust for Life album, Sex Pistols, never mind the Bullocks. You know, uh, The Damned, 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 and The Clash. You know, they're self-titled. Now, you know, punk, it's like the distant cousin of metal. They didn't get along too well. The punkers, you know, weren't into metal, but like early Maiden, some considered it met, uh, punk. And, you know, so that that's what was going on. And actually, commenting on Van Halen, when they were going... The song Atomic Punk was, you know, a tip of the hat to the punks. The band wanted to write something that resembled the punk movement. So, and to go a step further, that striped uh, emblem that Eddie became famous for, yeah, I think he sort of borrowed it from a local California punk band that the guy actually had it on there too. So, the world's intertwined and... You know, that's part of the reason why we do this is help untwine all these stories and myths and rumors. So, well, guys, hey, 77, fantastic. Um, can't believe what's going to happen in 78, because if this was a five speed, we're just coming out of uh, first, second gear. We're really ready to get hit the road. So, guys, uh, any comments before we get out of here? If anybody gets a chance, now that we've gotten to this point with Cheap Trick finally releasing their self-titled, there was a really cool article I stumbled across that was from Doug Grubb from Spin Magazine called The Four Weirdest Bands of the 70s. And it talks about Kiss, Aerosmith, Cheap Trick, and Stars. And it really was a decent read. So anybody that is into going that far into this kind of a deep dive, do yourself a favor and check that out too. But other than that, great show again, guys. Couldn't agree more. And I will second Ian on his fantastic remarks about Riot. I think that's the takeaway of the show. That's a band that needs more listening, more exposure. And uh, Rock City certainly was uh, a killer metal album all the way around. Well, it's the start because, you know, Fire Down Under and Restless Breed, that's right around the corner. All right. Well, for my two brothers in metal, Ian O'Rourke and Metal Walt, I'm the Vernomatic, and this is Metal Mayhem ROC, the history of metal, the year 1977. Talk to you next week, folks. Metal for Life. Thanks for listening to Metal Mayhem ROC. Check out our websites at MetalMayhemROC.com and MetalForever.com for information on upcoming concerts, podcasts, archives, and all sorts of info. Please like, follow, and share with everyone, even your non-metal friends. Catch us next time on WLFE-DB Radio.